Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about mortgage rates, the number of LOs who have left the industry over the last two years, and the commission lawsuits facing NAR. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with Ryan Marshall, CEO and founder of Equity Protect, to talk about a very specific and growing kind of fraud risk. Ryan, what is being done today about deed fraud? We've closely collaborated with prominent title law firms in the country to identify the actual vulnerabilities that are associated with the financial crime. Our focus has been to understand how the crimes are facilitated. We've explored all legal mechanisms and we've aligned our solution with the existing laws and constraints that are customary policies in the, in the transaction. So fortunately, what we've done is we've successfully devised a range of methods that harmonize all of these elements together. Our approach combines a biometric multi-factor authentication, authenticated transactional hyperledger layer, and a newly crafted copyrighted property notice form that's accepted in all 50 states. In essence, our service parallels to a credit lock that you would find you know, when you lock your credit. We actively monitor and prevent any suspicious activities that ever happen on your property. Thanks, Ryan. Listeners, find out more information at equityprotect.com. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back, Sarah. You know, there's so much going on, but the first thing I want to talk about is a story you wrote with Will Robinson for your Data Digest newsletter about the number of LOs in who are working now compared to last year. And your headline, which, you know, caught our eye and, and many other people's eyes was that nearly 100,000 LOs have, quote unquote, washed out. Um, so I'd love to talk to you about that story. Yeah. So we've been working with Ingenious, Jeff Walton, and a couple other excellent data scientists and, and uh, longtime mortgage uh, industry pros. And they were able to put together a really interesting data set for us, which was twofold, really. We wanted to look at one, how are different channels doing based on really the time period of the Fed rate hikes, right? So you think about kind of late Q1 2022, a lot of it didn't really start spiking dramatically until that second quarter of 2022. And then we wanted to look at where we are today, the most recent data being available, the second quarter of 2023. We also wanted to take a look at the number of licensed loan originators and look at really how they're doing today on average, what sort of production numbers are we looking at, what sort of dollar volume and also look back all the way to 2019 so we can see what was sort of a normal look in 2019 uh, pre-pandemic, right? Because we know that there was a massive spike caused by the Fed dropping interest rates to near zero. And, and so what we found was the all-time high, should be no surprise to anyone, is in 2021. Really, the second and third quarters were just absolute bonanza for loan originators. And the statistics bear out that over a 
a single quarter, an LO in really mid 2021 would be producing around 20 to 22 units per quarter, right? And they'd be looking at dollar volume of around almost $7 million, again, just one quarter. So if, if you were to extrapolate this going even further, we're talking about the average LO being probably like a $15 million a year producer, maybe more, you know, and we know that there are some that did far more, right? Shant, who we saw at Housing Wire Annual, did, I think, well over a billion that year, right? Uh, Thun Win. Uh, a loan factory, you know, had had a great year in 2021. There are a lot of really extreme top producers, but even the average, even sub-average LO was greatly boosted by just the fact that there were so many both homeowners and prospective homeowners who were in the market for a loan because the rates were incredible, right? I mean, heck, I, I got a rate at 2.7% in September of 2021. And, and just, you know, there, there's there's no comparison really to today. You know, the borrowing costs have tripled, quadrupled, even more than that. Septupled, I guess would be the right word. I don't, I don't even know. My, uh, I need to go back to school, but, but they, they've really grown dramatically. And so if you look at the most recent quarter, the second quarter, the average LO was producing far less volume, uh, both in terms of units, but also in dollar volume. And the major shift here is is twofold again, which is today, if you have made it to the second quarter of 2023, you're probably going, my, my, my guess is that you're probably going to make it because if you look at your competitors, almost 100,000 LOs, about 92,000 have washed out since 2021. And there just aren't that many LOs who can withstand uh, a huge decline in available customers over the course of more than a year. You know, we're, we're talking a year and a half at least, right? And and maybe some of them could do it for the first couple months when rates really started to push into the high fives, maybe the low sixes. But we also know from consumer data that there's a lot of people in the marketplace who who see the magic number as being 5.5, maybe 6. And we, we haven't seen those rates in quite some time. You know, we, we even look back to where we were a year ago when the rates were close to seven, right? And now they're about 8%. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the program. But this, this has huge spillover effects for any loan officer. The best of the best are down about 50%, right? And so how many of them never in their careers touch that 100 million a year category, like 90 something percent of them, right? So everyone is is struggling with a marketplace like that. And if you haven't been able to save your money appropriately, if you don't have the ability to, you know, um, offer better rates than some of even your coworkers, right? Let alone your competitors, you're at a major disadvantage. And, and so it's it's hard to imagine how many more I think could wash out, but as as of the second quarter, we were at about eighty nine thousand uh, loan officers, and that compares to I want to say it was the second quarter of twenty twenty one. We're at about one hundred eighty thousand, give or take. So the difference is just absolutely massive. 
It is massive. So one of the things that you looked at, and I thought it was a great question you were trying to answer, is you, you know we know that a whole uh, purchase market is going to usually uh, benefit brokers more, right? So wholesale goes up because it's a relationship business. You looked at that, and what did you find as far as market share? So we did find that over really the past year, this is the the second quarter of 2022 to the second quarter of 2023. The broker channel has gained about five percentage points over the retail channel. These are direct. We're not we're not looking at correspondent in in kind of a pure sense. Um, you know, both channels can do correspondent. I, I think that kind of muddies the water because you know, although it's a very viable, there, there's nothing wrong with being a correspondent lender. You're you're essentially buying loans, right? Like it's not the same as someone who is um, working with the actual consumer in, in a pure sense, right? So what we wanted to do is look at where the broker channel was versus the retail channel, kind of one-to-one a little over a year ago, and then to where it is now. And we were at about 23% for broker around Q2 2022, right about 28% in Q2 2023. And I think the reason is really quite simple. One, and this this is not a rule, of course, but a general statement in that there is a lot of retail lenders who are a little more call center minded, who have maybe more direct to consumer models. And that's not necessarily a function of the broker channel, right? I mean, sure, there are brokers who do, um, you know, borrow from some, maybe what some would consider kind of like retail-ish um, sales tactics, strategies. Um, but for the most part, it's very much a referral relationship business. And, and I'd say the vast majority are getting their lead, leads directly from referral partners. And so I think that's one of the major reasons that the broker channel has fared better. Um, you know, there are people who argue that the broker channel is better because the cost basis is so much lower and they're able to provide better rates. And I think in some cases that's probably true, but you talk to folks on the retail side and they say, look, it's all the same. They just bake the cake a little bit differently, right? It's not it's not a huge savings. It's not a structural change. If it were, it wouldn't just be UWM being so absolutely dominant. All of the other lenders would say, oh, you know, this is the channel to be in because it's um, it's just so much better from a cost basis standpoint, right? Achieving the efficiencies that a UWM is able to achieve has not really been done. Um, and there is a reason for that. It is an extraordinarily hard thing to do. And very, very, very few can do it. In fact, so far, only one has ever really, truly done it like that. Um, and so, you know, the, the broker channel does offer, I think, a lot of advantages and, and just, you know, due to the nature of it is very much a relationship-based business. So if we are to see a market that is similar, broadly similar to where we are now in 2023, rates in the sixes, sevens, eights, hopefully no further than that. God, I can't imagine what that would look like. Um but let's say it's similar in 2024. I think there's a pretty decent chance that the broker channel would continue to pick up a couple extra points. But I also want to caution that even though they are gaining some ground on retail, we're still talking like, what, you know, 75, 25. Retail was still the absolute dominant uh, channel in mortgage and will continue to be for quite some time. It's not going to change the paradigm, but I do think the brokers have some structural advantages in a marketplace like this. It's so wild because we know that like um, new home sales, right? So the lenders who are associated with builders, they're having, you know, 
a banner you're compared to what they, you know, their usual market share is so much smaller. It's just that there are so few existing homes for sale. And so, you know, as a, as a percentage, the new home sales look like, wow, this is so many, but it's like, it's not that much more than normal. It's just that there's so few existing homes. Yeah, that's true. The Lennar mortgage arms, the DHI, you know, from Dear Horton, um, and, and there are a bunch of others that, that are essentially either joint ventures or just literally lending arms that are controlled by a home builder. They have the ability to change the margins like an IMB or a bank just don't have the ability to do. No independent mortgage bank is looking at the uh, <laughs> at the term sheet and saying, you know what, we're going to go for 4.75, even though rates otherwise are in, in the sevens, they would be so far underwater. And keep in mind, even in the second quarter, despite being better than the first quarter, the average independent mortgage bank that was in retail still lost 500 something dollars per loan. So they don't have the kind of wiggle room. A home builder is looking at the economics and saying, look, we probably have a pretty stable market for a couple of years because it's just you know, it's it's hard to envision a lot more inventory hitting, right? And so if we take a 20% margin instead of a 30% margin by offering either say, let's say for argument's sake, like $15,000 or $20,000 or custom finishes or or we just buy down the rate, right? And, and these are permanent buy downs. We're not, some of them do just temporary, like, or, you know, two for one buy downs or there are all kinds of ways that they can do it. But a lot of them are, are just looking at the raw economics and saying, we have a pretty captive user base right here, right? There's just not a lot of competition from existing homes. We want to keep our capture rate in the 80s and the 90s. And the most sensible way to do that is to help with the financing, right? It's to buy down that rate, sometimes two and a half, three points. And there's a decent chance that rates don't even get down to you know, in the example that I just submitted, what, 4.25% you would need for that to be an incentive to even refi out of it, you know? So it's just, it's it's not something an IMB can compete with. And so the enemy for the independent mortgage bank is really just existing home sales. And unless you see, I think, two scenarios, one, rates get so crazy, and we also uh, have that paired with big job losses, uh, you know, economic crisis for the average American who can't wiggle out of it and decides to sell or, um, you know, some other major, major event. It's, um, it's, it's going to be pretty tough. You know, I don't see rates coming down dramatically. So you're not going to get any new home sale business. Like it's just not a thing that the average LO or IMB is going to achieve. So you have to target the existing home sales market. And that's very slow in almost every single community in America. There are what a handful in which you're even approaching kind of normal 2018, 2019 levels. So the the pie has gotten smaller for everyone. Yes, that's that's a great point. We're going to talk about those 8% mortgage rates here in a second. But um, I was just going to add on, you and I had a conversation at our um, Housing Wire Annual about the fact that I talked to a builder around here locally, and not only were they giving $15,000 off, they weren't buying down the rate, but they were giving $15,000 off. They were also offering a free refi for the next 18 months. So, um, you know, that, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. You're like, okay, well, you know, if I, if I get in at this, um, 
really high rate and you're going to pay for a refi in, in the next 18 months, good bet that there's going to be something, you know, I want to refi into in the next 18 months. So, I mean, that's, that's just a huge advantage. Yeah. And, and to your point, it's, it's not like the builders are the only ones doing this. Now, this isn't specific to new home sales, but in the existing sales market, there are a lot of big IMVs that are looking at it and saying, okay, if you're going to be taking a 7.2% rate, just for argument's sake, uh, we'll give you a free refi, you know, in the next X number of years. And there are always a couple asterisks and, you know, terms and conditions may vary, um, but they're looking to make certain that they get that origination in now, rather than worry about what the sales market might look like in, let's say, two years, maybe, you know, whatever the time period might be. I don't know you know, all the intricacies of the finances of every IMB. Um, but but they're really prioritizing now over tomorrow. And I think just given how dire uh, a lot of the, the lending climate has been over the last, eight, let's say, year to 18 months, it's the only sensible approach for a lot of them, which is sad. You know, it's really unfortunate. It is sad because, I mean, it's not even like uh, in that case, I know there's not just like huge volume right now. So you just think, ah, cutting off, you know, some future thing. But if you're not around in the future, it's not going to matter. So um, I think one of the things Marina Walsh said to me from the MBA at MBA Annual was, uh, you know, she's heard the phrase survive till 25. I was like, dang, you know, that's so rough. I hate that that idea, but I mean, it's, you know, so let's go into our next topic, which is 8% mortgage rates. We're there. I mean, we've been there for a couple of weeks, depending on, you know, the lender and, and what you're bringing to the table, but um, now we're officially there. Yeah. So on Mortgage News Daily, the rate on Wednesday hit 8.03%. Now it's a little bit lower on Optimal Blue. It's, it's quite a bit lower, uh, according to the Freddie Mac PMMS. Uh, but if you look at where the 10-year treasury yield is, and the spread has been pretty consistent at about three, you know, 300, um, it tracks, right? So that's a big, big, scary number, I think, for borrowers. The material difference for a prospective borrower between 7.92%, which is, I think, what it was last week, versus 8%. Yesterday, today is not actually that significant. You know, like we're, we're talking probably a couple dollars per month. I think it's the psychological impact. People look at that and think, oh my God, 8% rates. Like I know friends and family and neighbors and other people who have rates in the twos. Am I insane for signing up for a rate at 8%? And yes, it's also true that a number of them did get 8% rates a couple of weeks ago. It's not, it's not to suggest. Um, that this hasn't already occurred. You know, usually when we look at the mortgage rates kind of in a vacuum, it's assuming 20% down. Not a lot of people today are doing 20% down, first of all. Um, it's also assuming pristine credit, you know, in the upper sevens, maybe even higher in some cases. The practical advice would be we've been at eight, you know, for for a little while now. Um, and, and you talk to anybody who isn't getting like, you know, a W-2 uh, standard vanilla mortgage and, you know, they, they were probably above that already, um, but maybe even like 100 basis points or more, right? So um, try try to find a bridge loan. Like that's been in the double digits for a while. Try to find, you know, construction of perm, like try to find all kinds of products 
that are out there. Um, one of the problems is even at 8%, you look at something like, you know, the arms and, and even though they've gone up in, in terms of product popularity, they're not low enough for people to say that makes such a meaningful difference that I am going to decide to buy right now. And so you're seeing just a lot of deep freeze in the market. And I do think that the rates are going to come down. I, I would like to think that eight is is probably a high water mark. And, and it also comes on on the heels of, of um, you know, some <laughs> some word from Fed governors uh, that they might keep monetary policy tight for quite some time and even tighter than now. So uh, that's that's certainly going to, to shake the bond market a little bit. And it's going to create even more uncertainty, even though I think the consensus generally is that the rate hikes at least appear to be done for now. Um, but again, it's just the fact that so few people have a crystal ball. And, and you may remember this, Sarah, I, I feel like so long ago we talked about the possibility, it might have been in early 2022, that we might see 7% rates. And I think at the time we're like, yeah, I guess it's possible. Like it could, it could probably happen. I mean, there, there are all, all kinds of reasons that economists and people much more fluent in monetary policy than us uh, have conjured to determine that this is a very real possibility. But I think at the time, the kind of the expectation, you know, a lot of the forecasting was, yeah, maybe, but probably not, right? Like we'll probably get to the high sixes and then it'll it'll peter down. We'll we'll reach kind of a norm and maybe the mid sixes, maybe even the low sixes, and the market will be a little bit down. It'll be bumpy, it'll be tricky, but it won't I, I don't want to use the word collapse, but it won't completely uh <laughs> you know. Ooh, um and if you look at volume where we are, I think the latest forecast is about like 1.4 trillion this year. I still think that's optimistic. I don't think it's going to reach 1.4 even. And then you look at next year's forecast better. I think the NBA forecast was 1.9. I should double check, but I, I want to say it was closer to 1.9, which is like a pretty normal year, right? But regardless, it's not going to be a great year next year. And so winter is coming as a, as a very popular TV show on HBO uh, once said, and all of 2024 could be a winter. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire with Melinda Wilner, Chief Operating Officer at UWM. Melinda, the wholesale channel has grown significantly over the past year. What does this mean for the industry? Yes, Sarah, it has grown significantly. What we're seeing is a lot of retail loan officers that are coming into wholesale, knowing that it's just a better way and better value add for their borrowers, too. So it's been a really great shift, and I'd say the majority of what's there. And it's been really great. You know, we've watched the wholesale channel based on the direct funded loans rise up to over 22% in Q2 from uh, data from IMF. So it's really great to see the wholesale channel is growing. It's fantastic to get more borrowers into the wholesale channel because it really, really is the best place to go to for a loan. So we're so excited to watch that pickup, to see that pickup, to continue to support mortgage brokers and borrowers that wholesale really is the best way. Thanks, Melinda. And listeners, you can find out more at BeAMortgageBroker.com.
Um, I wanted to switch a little bit and and just talk about the fact that um, starting on Monday, we're going to be having an in-person presence at um, another topic that we hear so much about from both real estate and our mortgage audience. And that is the um, trials that NARA is going through, right? There's a class action uh, trial happening. It started this week. It's um, We're going to have people on site. You're going to be on site starting Monday. And then I'm going to be there for a week and Tracy's going to be there for a week, uh, Tracy Velt. So we expect that this is a three-week trial. Um, that we will have a verdict at the end of that, um, hugely impactful for our industry. So maybe, um, you know, talk about that. I had you on stage at Housing Wire Annual talking about this commission lawsuits, and we have been inundated since then with people wanting more information, wanting you to come speak, wanting us to write some more about it. So maybe you can give us just, you know, a short um, preview for people uh, who don't know, um, sort of a short update on where we are and and what we expect next week. Yeah. So I, I was surprised when when we did get up on stage at a housing wire annual. So many people didn't really know a lot about it. These cases have been working their way through the court system for a number of years now, and they are potentially very consequential. So the one that we're, we're kind of specifically talking about right now is called Sitzer Burnett. It is uh, on trial right now in Kansas city, Missouri. The other major case is called the moral case. And that is expected to kick off in early 2024 in Chicago. The moral case potential damages to the real estate industry could be north of $40 billion. In this case, in Missouri, Sitzer Burnett, it could be as much as $4 billion. Now, I should say that when class action attorneys and plaintiffs go after an industry or go after various companies, they're not in most cases, seeking to put them out of business, they are seeking the largest payout they can possibly achieve. So I don't think that the aim here is to completely get rid of you know the NAR or Keller Williams or Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. Uh, so the cases are really primarily centered on the rules that govern commissions. And the way, and I'll, I'll simplify it because there, there's a little bit more complexity than I, I want to get into here, but generally how it works is, let's say I am the home seller. Sarah, you're my agent. You and I are going to have a discussion and you are going to say, here's what I normally charge for commissions. Are you comfortable, James, doing a 6% commission, which is very bog standard and has kind of been the standard in America for a very long time now. And in most cases, in almost every case, I will just say, yes, we will not negotiate those commissions down. I could say, no, we'll do 2%. Now you would probably as the agent say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to work for, for that, that little money. Um, but maybe you'll agree to say five, 5%, right. For argument's sake. So again, Sarah, you are my agent. You are going to take that money and you are going to try to find uh, a buyer, right? And in most cases, a buyer is going to have their own real estate agent. And you are going to, if a deal is um, is struck, you are going to hand over basically half of that commission to the buy side agent. One of the advantages of a system like this is that the buyer doesn't have to front load that money. The buyer, depending on one's definition, isn't paying for that service. Now, the argument uh, I, I think that a lot of good lawyers would say is that 
it is being made. You know, it's it's part of the cost of the house. You're buying the house. You're paying for the services of procuring the house. And so the buyer is, in fact, uh, you know, paying for those services. But in a very pure sense, it is the selling agent who is compensating the buying agent. And that is largely because there are rules by the NAR that mandate it if one is going to use the MLS. And so the plaintiffs are essentially arguing that sellers are subsidizing the buyers and they should dislocate they should potentially dislocate the practice whereby the seller has to compensate the buyer's representation that the buyer should pay for their own representation. And if that were to happen, I, I think one would very clearly see that suddenly the buyer would then have to pay for their own agent, right? And that might be $6,000, $7,000. It could be far more depending on the sale of the home. And the NAR is, is, arguing that this practice is in the consumer's best interest and that there is no conspiracy, there is no collusion uh, to artificially raise the commission uh, rates in America. Now, the plaintiffs will argue quite the opposite, right, which is that effectively there has been a conspiracy by the brokerages, by the agents to work every legal avenue possible to maintain a structure that benefits the agent and not necessarily the, the buyer or seller. Uh, they argue that commissions are significantly higher in the U.S. than any other country, that they're tied to the price of the home. And so every agent, uh, you know, is advantaged when the home sells for more, right? Because it's all baked into the commissions are baked into the sale price, right? Uh, on the buy side. And, and so there are also allegations from the plaintiffs of steering that agents will not show houses in which the buy side, uh, you know, there's a lower, let's see, some flat fee brokerages or others that have lower commission rates um, because they're they're trying to maintain uh, what they believe is is you know the appropriate uh, compensation level for the work provided, and so that case is ongoing right now in Kansas City. It kicked off a couple of days ago, and over the first few days of the trial, really, it's been a lot of video depositions from industry leaders such as uh, Gary Keller, Gina Blafari, uh, Bob Goldberg of the NAR, and the plaintiffs are basically trying to argue that you have, you know that you are trying to keep these commissions as high as possible and doing so is a violation of federal antitrust law. And the NAR is saying there is no conspiracy. You know, these policies have been clearly written on the NAR's website for many years that we don't set commissions, that the brokerages, you know, are working in, in, you know, the right interests of the consumer and that agents should be compensated and that it's a better experience for the consumer when you have qualified advisement on both sides of the transaction. And, and you know, by effectively uh, dislocating the current commission structure, you are creating far more problems than you would ever be solving for. So this is a very consequential case. It's probably going to go on for a couple more weeks. 
I'll be in Kansas City next week. It's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of note taking. They don't allow recordings or electronic devices in the courthouse, so uh, I'll be without a phone for the first time since probably sixth grade. So that'll be interesting, uh, a new experience for me. And uh, then we'll be doing podcasts and recaps and, and really trying to, you know, trying to get down to the bottom of the arguments and, and really get a sense of what happens, right? One other major factor, I know we're short on time here, Sarah, is that the Department of Justice has taken a huge amount of interest in these cases. The Department of Justice, a couple years back, had essentially told the NAR that they want to change uh, a lot of these rules, that they want uh, more oversight, that they don't feel that the um, consumer is getting the best deal possible because the commission rates are high. And I think there's a very strong possibility that the Justice Department either pursues its own case, regardless of the outcome of these two large commission cases out of Missouri and Illinois, uh, or it somehow becomes party in some way. They've already weighed in on the third uh, case that does not involve the NAR. It's called No Select out of Boston in Massachusetts. And um, they're, they're trying to to basically stop uh, some of the proceedings, some of the, you know, the, the actual settlement agreement in that case. So I, I think that there's a very real possibility that let's say the NAR and the brokerages, Keller Williams and uh, Home Services of America do prevail. Um, there are other potential classes that could be brought. It could be brought in almost any other state. It could be all kinds of other brokerages that uh, are brought into this because they all effectively had very similar practices um, during those years. And I think it's very likely that the Department of Justice ends up stepping in and saying, we really want to fundamentally change how commissions work in, in this country. And that could mean the NAR loses a tremendous number of members. It could mean that a lot of the MLSs need to consolidate. Maybe I, I think in, in some libertarian fantasy, there is one MLS that governs all of the uh, you know the, the listings in America. There are a lot of different possibilities. There are so many variables. It's impossible to say what will happen. I don't know. I just absolutely do not know. I think even the people who study this day in and day out do not know. There are way too many uh, very significant X factors here. Um, but I do think it's very likely that there is going to be a major change to um, either the commission structure, the participation rule or clear cooperation rule, or just how agents get paid, right? It may not just be sellers. And that could happen as soon as 2024. And I think this has so many implications, um, not just if you're in real estate, if you're in mortgage and all of a sudden you're, um, the buyer has to come up with a commission at closing as opposed to like, oh, the seller's paying for it, whatever. It just throws everything, you know, a, a wrench into everything. So I'm really glad we're going to be having an on-site presence, keeping very close track of this trial, reporting on it. And we look forward to that starting on Monday. So thanks, James. All right, and if anyone is in Kansas City, uh, the Missouri side, that is, and, and wants to meet up, I'll, I'll have some evenings free after I finish filing stories. Uh, I'd love to meet up with you. And, and uh, I don't know, I like cocktail bars personally. So if anyone likes cocktail bars and knows a good one in Kansas City, Missouri, and wants to grab a drink, uh, you'll have to pay for your own, of course. But hit me up. Let me know. Love to meet you. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. 
If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.